if people can't wrap their heads around consuming glucose, we'll think about consuming how much glycogen you would get when you would consume a freshly killed animal. Took my life to a whole new level. Check out this review on whole package from Heart and Soil Supplements. The addition of whole package from Heart and Soil Supplements has truly transformed my life. From the supplements to the animal-based diet and lifestyle, this company and way of living has created an upward spiral and domino effect of positive changes in my life. At 22 years old, I feel as if I'm now on the right path and it started with the right dietary choice, workout regimen, and the supplements, especially whole package, really took my life to a whole new level. Paul and the supplements changed my life forever. This supplement was mentioned on Joe Rogan with Forrest Gallant about the fact that whole package contains androgens. All of our supplements at Heart and Soil received informed sports certification for purity, but whole package didn't because whole package contains androgens, multiple derivatives of testosterone, including testosterone, which are found in testicles, and they won't certify a supplement that contains testosterone. Now, all the androgens in whole package are naturally occurring, but they won't certify it. So. As I've said before, if you're a professional athlete, somebody that might be drug tested, be careful with this one. For the rest of us, it's a great way to get bioactive testosterone and metabolites into your diet, and that can change your life. Look at the reviews for Whole Package on our website, and you will see what I mean. And if you have any questions about the bioavailability of this, look at the reviews on our website, and you'll see what I mean. And there's good evidence that the peptides, the cofactors, the hormones found in desiccated organs are bioavailable, especially when consumed with long chain saturated fatty acids, like the kind found in the steak you're eating with your whole package. So uh, yeah. So our mission at Heart and Soil is to help you reclaim your birthright to optimal radical health. Find whole package and all of our supplements at heartandsoil.co. On this week's podcast, I had the distinct pleasure of chatting with my buddy, James Antonio who is a wealth of knowledge. He's written so many books. I believe his last one is called The Collagen Cure. We talk about all kinds of things. I ask him what he feels about carbs and keto and magnesium and hydration and salt and electrolytes. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. So James is a wealth of information. You will enjoy this podcast with him. I know you'll get a lot out of it and look for our collabs on social media to promote this one. So enjoy this podcast with my friend, James Antonio. He's a pharmacist and you guys are probably familiar with him on Instagram. He's a, uh, he's a tweet master. Also want to give a shout out to the podcast sponsors of this episode who make this possible. Let's start with Bond Charge, B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD there to save 15% off. And they do all kinds of great stuff, guys. Bond Charge makes blue light blocking glasses. They make EMF reducing headphones, which are wired, which I love and I have and I use for this computer. And I use on my phone because I don't use AirPods, I'm not a fan of the EMF coming off of those. And my computer right now is on an EMF blocking mat from Bond Charge. If you are listening to something with AirPods or you are sticking your laptop on your lap, you're getting exposed to non-ionizing radiation, non-native EMF, and we just don't understand what that truly does to humans. Cue the tinfoil hat, but I would rather be safe than sorry. And I do not want the EMF from my laptop going into my testicles. You should not want it going into yours or your ovaries. And maybe you should think about those AirPods and putting that non-native EMF Bluetooth into your brain. So you can find all their stuff, headphones, EMF blocking mats for your laptop, which I think are the best gift you can give anyone, which I think are just about the best gift you can give anyone at bondcharge, B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. Coupon code is CarnivoreMD to save 15% off. Next up is Schwank Grills. They have an amazing name, Schwank. I think it's a family name, formerly Blazing Bull, but 
Now they're called Schwank, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, and you can find them at schwankgrills.com, S-C-H-W-A-N-K, grills.com. You can use the code Paul150 at checkout to get 100 bucks off your Schwank 1500 degree grill. Now, this is an easy read for me to do because I brought a Schwank grill to Costa Rica because I like this thing so much. And every time anyone comes over to my house, they look at this beautiful stainless steel creation that makes the best steaks, the best burgers, the best seared liver, thymus, or whatever I'm gonna grill in there they've ever had. It also makes amazing bone marrow. You can cook anything in it, fish, all kinds of stuff. I'm not even gonna say the P word because I know none of you guys are making pizza, but you could make a pizza in the Schwank grill if you wanted to. And it's amazing. So they now have natural gas models as well. But as I said, it's a revolutionary portable infrared grill that heats up to over 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, delivering premium steakhouse quality taste. You got to try it. You got to try it. They've been used. The Schwenk's heating technology has been used by the world's best steakhouses since the 1980s. Now you can do it in the comfort of your home. Listen, I brought this thing to Costa Rica because I love it so much. So go to schwankgrills.com. That is S-C-H-W-A-N-K grills.com. Use the code Paul150 to get $150 off your Schwank grill. You will not regret it. This thing is incredible. It puts whatever grill you're using in your backyard to shame. I promise you, it's amazing. Next up, got to give a shout out to my friends at 8sleep. You can go to 8sleep.com front slash carnivoremd. That's E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com front slash carnivoremd. Save 150 bucks on the 8sleep pod cover, which currently ships to the USA, Canada, the UK. Now, what is the 8sleep pod cover? It's basically AI for your bed. It goes on any mattress and it helps you improve the quality of your sleep which is the ultimate game changer. Talk about a recovery aid, talk about a performance enhancing substance. It allows you to provide the optimal temperature that gets you the best night's sleep. With the pod covers dual zone temperature control, you and your partner can set different sides of the bed as low as 55, basically sleeping in a meat cooler, or as hot as 110 if you wanna sleep in the sauna, somewhere in the middle for most of us, but it's amazing. It also has biometrics, environment, sleep stages, and will give you those biometrics in the morning. Better sleep is the health habit you will love sticking to night after night. Wake up fully energized with the pod so you can tackle whatever life throws at you. I love this thing, guys. You will not regret this. Check out 8sleep.com front slash carnivoremd to save $150 on the 8sleep pod cover. They currently ship to the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. Last but not least, got to shout out my friends at Kalima Sea Salt. I love this stuff, guys. Go to drpaulsalt.com to get your free bag of Kalima sea salt, free of ocean-borne microplastics. We dump 8 million tons of garbage in the ocean every year, and that ends up in your sea salt, but not Kalima, because it is free of ocean-borne microplastics. It is from the Kalima salt flats in Mexico, which means it's 100% natural, unrefined, handmade, hand-harvested, so it supports a local economy in Kalima Salt Flats in Mexico, and it's freaking delicious, super crunchy. It's my favorite finishing salt. You get your first bag free. 90% of all salt tested has microplastics from the ocean, but not Kalima. It is free of ocean-borne microplastics. Go to drpaulsalt.com for your free bag of Kalima Sea Salt. All right, guys, enjoy the podcast. James, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It's been way too long. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So I was just uh, going through some of your prolific tweets 
if you're like a tweet master, and um, I pulled out some highlights that I thought might be fun to start the podcast with. So one of the one of the cooler ones I saw, which was very popular, was this notion that having visible abs, having a six pack, is harder than becoming a millionaire. <laughs> Where did you find the statistics around this? This is crazy. Yeah. Well, so essentially, in order for you to be able to see have visible abs, you have to have at a minimum 14% body fat or less. So when you have 70% of US adults being overweight or obese, it's pretty rare to find someone with a six pack nowadays. Anything less than, yeah, somebody less than 14% body fat. So the numbers in that post were that 3 million people in the United States, which is what, 330 million humans. So 3 million people have visible abs and there's 22 million people with a net worth of more than a million dollars. So. We're, we're talking like six, seven X here. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like essentially 1% of the U.S. population has the body fat necessary to even have visible abs. Oh my gosh. Um, so what's your body fat, man? I'm pretty sure you have visible abs, but I never see photos of you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do. It's not like super, super like, well, this is the best six pack ever, but I do have a six pack. Um, I would probably say I'm at around 14%, like right around uh -huh. that cost for 13, 14%. Um, uh -huh. so that's cool. We, um, so I haven't taken my shirt off as much on Instagram recently, but I've still got abs. I'll take my shirt off soon. I think maybe I'll do a post with a hat tip to you citing those statistics and talking about it. But uh, I've still got abs, people. It's all still there. I just wanted to get away from the uh, the shirtless Paul version of me to more of the, here's some good value about your nutrition stuff. So one of your other tweets that I thought was amazing was talking about this bagel study versus eggs. You'll have to send me this reference because I haven't seen it. There's been, there's been some like hate on eggs basically since 2017 and the whole TMAO thing and choline, which we can talk about. But you mentioned this study that it, I guess it compared two groups of obese women and one group was given eggs for breakfast and the other group was given bagels. This yeah. is wild. Yeah. Yeah. It was an eight, eight week study in overweight women. Um, and essentially there's been actually a couple studies. There's been about three studies comparing either, um, eggs to cereal or eggs to bagels. And what it, every single study shows is that you end up eating less total calories for the day when you start your morning with, let's say a higher protein breakfast, such as eggs versus bagels or cereal. And then there's also a greater weight loss as well. What the heck, but aren't eggs gonna, gonna, gonna cause me to die because of TMAO, James? Oh, the whole TMAO thing. So, um, TMAO is actually, if it's only moderately elevated, is just simply a marker typically of insulin resistance in the liver. Um, so what happens is when your liver becomes insulin resistant, something called uh, FMO3 increases, which then increases TMAO. So if you had, and, and so it's really not necessarily, let's say choline or eggs or um, carnitine from red meat, that's a problem. Um, it's actually the liver insulin resistance that's creating the high TMAO, which is the problem. And I've seen um, multiple studies and assays of this suggesting that an equivalent amount of fish contains more preformed TMAO yes. than the same amount of red meat that has choline and carnitine that would make TMAO in your gut if you had the proper, well, not proper, but if you had gut bacteria that would transform choline or carnitine into TMAO in the human body, which is wild. 
hundred um, percent. And we know that eating fish is not associated with any type of risk. It's associated with lower risks of dementia, heart disease, as we know. So TMAO, I think um, it's just a marker of disease. If you have very elevated levels too, that can that's typically a sign of kidney kidney disease. Um, exactly. Right. So it's like either liver insulin resistance or kidney disease is why all these studies are associating elevated levels of TMAO with heart disease. And there was an interesting paper that came out a few years ago, and it really showed pretty strong reverse causality, like between TMAO and um, things like heart disease or diabetes or kidney disease specifically. And this is just this complex, well, overly esoteric statistical term that when you have kidney disease, if your kidneys don't work well, then you're going to accumulate late more TMAO. So higher levels of TMAO may associate with kidney disease, but that doesn't mean that TMAO causes kidney disease. Right. If you have insulin resistance, you're going to have higher levels of TMAO. It doesn't mean insulin resistance. It doesn't mean that insulin resistance is caused by TMAO. It's probably the reverse that insulin resistance causes TMAO to go up and kidney disease causes TMAO to go up. So I think that that's interesting because I'll have to grab those studies from you. I would love to do some content on that because it's just solid proof that, Hey, look, whole animal foods are a very good way to eat your breakfast. And I mean, some of the headlines people were posting were like, eggs are worse than cigarettes and, and, you know, eggs, you know, eggs, the, the most crazy one was from kind of a, a, a shit posting website. And that, that's the, the headline was eggs are causing sudden death. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe something else is causing sudden death these days that we can't talk about, but uh, it's probably not eggs. Rob Wolf did a post about it. He was like, definitely not anything else that happened in the last few years. Right. Did you see this? Yeah, I, I just, saw, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was bonkers. It was just crazy. So all right, people, you can eat your eggs. So James, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, uh, let's see. I had uh, three eggs with probably five ounces of grass-fed steak and then um, probably like two, three ounces of potatoes. Nice. What kind of potatoes? Um, just organic yellow potatoes. And then I also had a pair, one pair too. All right. Yeah. I want to talk about carbohydrates. Maybe that's a good entrance for that. Um, yeah. How many, how many carbohydrates do you think you're getting in a day right now? Uh, probably like 150 on really hard exercise days, maybe 200. And a lot of it is loaded around the time of exercise. So um, I would say probably 30 to 40% of all my carbohydrate intake is probably post-exercise, to be fair. And how, what kind of a window are you looking at that in like an hour after exercise? Yeah, within, within an hour, probably. Um, there's a, there's a ton of, of reasons why you want to sort of try to get a lot of your nutrients um, post-exercise. Um, a lot of times the, the creatine pumps are upregulated. Um, basically, you, you can drive collagen um, into the cell better um, and the amino acids too into the cell better, especially if you have some carbs and protein. So um, if you're, if you're taking creatine, there's been two studies that have compared post exercise versus pre exercise supplementation and post beats pre because of that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so post exercise supplementation of creatine is better because of these pumps or like your body is more willing to take things up. Yeah. Just really almost any nutrient your, your exercise muscle is more sensitive to soaking up nutrients. And what does the literature say about the window? I've always heard canonically or colloquially like an hour or so. Yeah, that literally is about an hour where the, the skeletal muscle is much more sensitive to insulin. Um, and so 
you know, there's, there's a lot of people saying, well, it doesn't matter if you ingest your protein after or before. And that's kind of true when it comes to protein, as long as it's close to the time of exercise. And the second key is as long as your total amount of protein hits, you know, maximal protein synthesis, which is typically around 2.2 grams per kilogram. Uh-huh. Or like one gram per pound, essentially. Essentially, you know, we don't like to use essentially like body weight when we're talking to the general public because most people are overweight. So you try to say lean body weight, right? Or ideal body weight to, uh-huh. to maybe make it a little more clear. But yeah, essentially around one to 1.25 grams of protein per pound of ideal body weight is where you're going to get not only maximal muscle protein synthesis, but better satiety, weight loss, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, that's, what I think about when I'm thinking about the macros, if you have protein, fat, and carbohydrates, and I'm responding to a comment on Instagram or a DM and somebody's saying like, what should I eat? I think that most people, and you can let me know if you agree with this, most people would do well to start by thinking about how much protein they're getting in a day. Yeah. And this is just like high level, you know, we're not talking about micronutrients yet, but we can, we're just talking macronutrients, protein, fat, carbohydrates. I think most people, if there were more focus on people getting quote adequate amounts of protein, I think a lot of people would feel better. And I think this is the, the way to start. I would agree with you hundred percent, like one gram per pound of gold body weight. But I wonder how many people, how many people, if you had to guess, how many people in the United States do you think actually get the proper quote amount of protein per day? There, I mean, you'll find statistics that um, the average American is basically just barely hitting the RDA, like 0.8 grams of protein per um, kilogram. So they're barely hitting like, you know, the, the recommended dietary allowance for protein, um, which is basically the bare minimum to survive, um, but certainly not to thrive. Yeah. So 0.8 grams per kilogram would be like 0.4-ish per pound. And yes. we're we're talking, you know... 2x that, 2.2x that. So people are getting, just back of the envelope, we could say maybe people are getting 40, 35 to 40% of their optimal protein amounts in a day. And then the question becomes how much of the protein is coming from highly bioavailable sources, right? Because this is something I've talked a lot about and I've seen you talk about it too. Like all protein isn't really created equally. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, in your, from your perspective, meat versus plant protein, like bioavailability, what do we got here? Yeah. I mean, not just from a bioavailable perspective, but I think even more importantly, the bioavailable nutrient perspective, which you've covered ad nauseum as well. Um, And I mean, really, when you think about it too, from like an evolutionary and our own physiology, like Mickey Bendor really just opened the door on this for everyone. Like, you know, we were hyper carnivores, Um, certainly. you know, for the last 2.6 million years, I would say at least 70% of the calories were likely for most of our ancestors were coming from animals, you know, very large mammoths and elephants, etc. And Mickey Bendor has published amazing papers on this topic. And so our physiology is really adapted to a very high animal fat slash protein intake. Yeah. And for those who are interested, I've had Mickey on the podcast twice in the past, you can just search whatever platform you like to uh, 
look for your podcasts on and you'll find it's M-I-K-I. And then his last name is Ben, B-E-N hyphen D-O-R. And I think he's Israeli, right? Or I think he's yeah. Israeli. Yeah. yeah. So I've had some really interesting anthropology conversations with Mickey and uh, learned a lot from him. Since we've, since we've gone past the creatine thing a few times, let's just talk about this in detail. Uh, I've seen you post about this and really appreciate it. Like, can you think of a single more researched or more effective supplement or nutrient, quote unquote, than creatine for humans? I, I, I can't really. No, probably not because it's been studied for, for decades, like 50 years. Um, and it's consistently shown significant increases in muscle strength, um, muscle mass, um, you know, particularly supplementing around the time of exercise and around three to five grams per day. Um, what's so cool, what's so interesting is that there's, there's a sevenfold difference in regards to how much creatine phosphate gets stored. If you take creatine around the time of exercise versus not, it's a sevenfold difference. Wow. So if you want to get a seven fold increase on the benefits of creatine, don't take it while fasting or before bedtime, you take it around the time of exercise, particularly post-exercise. And that's not even counting the, the 50 to 60% increase that you'll see when you also take it with carbohydrates as well. Okay. So the protocol for creatine could be three to five grams per day plus carbohydrates in that one hour window after exercise. Yeah. Ideally too, with about 30, 40 grams of protein as well, will help with the insulin release and, and help with the creatine being stored. And we can just begin the conversation about hydration. How much fluid would you take that with? Or isn't this hydration kind of an important thing to consider here too? Yeah, it is. So anecdotally, um, and also clinically creatine monohydrate definitely increases the, the water content of the muscles, like the intracellular water content. So you have to increase your intake of water and electrolytes when you start taking creatine. Um, otherwise you're going to sort of dehydrate other parts of the body. Okay. And so this is something that I've thought about a lot, like to get five grams of creatine per day from food, it's not that easy. I mean, perhaps if you're in a tribe and you have a huge kill and you're eating, I mean, when I calculated it, it was like over two pounds of meat per day. So like 2.1 or 2.2 pounds of meat to get five grams of creatine per day. Yeah. Um, so I think most people are not eating that much meat. Some people listening to this who are large humans or who are kind of interested in this hyper carnivorism, or I definitely have met both men and women who consume two pounds of meat per day. But I think a lot of people are not getting this much creatine per day. My perspective or, or what, what I'm aware of is that if you do a loading dose of creatine of 20 grams a day, you can saturate the muscles in five days. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong here. And then if you do five grams a day, it takes around 20 to 30 days to saturate the muscles. Is that right? Yeah, it takes about four weeks. Yeah. Four weeks. Is there like, at what point does, does it sort of not reach saturation? What, do you have any data on this or any sense? Like if somebody's getting three grams of creatine per day, which is probably more reachable for most of us from food, can we extrapolate and say maybe 60 days, like two months to saturate the muscles? Or, you know, I wonder like what the, uh, what the flux is of creatine in versus out. Yeah, we don't know what the threshold is for creatine phosphate storage and what total creatine we can get the muscles and brain to. Um, but, I'm, but based on some good data combining the precursor to the formation of creatine with creatine, 
which dramatically increases um, the storage of creatine phosphate compared to just creatine alone, like around eightfold difference. Um, it seems like there's a there's a lot of room to play with in regards to how much more you can increase your creatine phosphate stores through through supplementation, through post exercise window, through carbohydrates, plus protein, through all the things to optimize it. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm thinking for myself, maybe this means that my exercise is usually a morning surf, and when I come back from my morning surf, I usually have a glass of raw milk with some honey. So I'm getting carbohydrates, I'm getting protein. Um, if I wanted to get more protein, I could put a little creatine in there and get the protein, the carbohydrates, the creatine and do it all together. I mean, yep. that's, I'm thinking out loud and hopefully that helps people translate what it looks like for them. You know, I right. mean, milk, chocolate milk has been studied as this great ergogenic aid post exercise. I wouldn't necessarily do chocolate milk with right. Sucrose, I'd rather do raw goat's milk with honey, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, totally. Um, I know, like, everything gets a bad rap, and there's not necessarily bad foods, although I would disagree there are, but there, <laughs> people say they're only bad diets, right? But yes, if you time more refined carbohydrates, specifically in a post-exercise window, you can kind of get away with it much better than not. Interesting. I saw you post about drinking orange juice online. Yeah. And you said that you were drinking a few ounces of orange juice throughout the day. Are you using orange juice post-exercise or using it all throughout the day right now? So it really depends on my activity level. But yes, always after post-exercise, like my body just craves some type of, um, you know, glucose surge. And, and, and orange juice seems to be something that my body just craves. So that's why I started doing it. I started running a lot more, like five days a week. I run one to two miles a day. And when you deplete your glycogen stores, I think you you really start benefiting when you start doing that timed carbohydrate intake to replenish them your my cognition is so much better when i have a few ounces of orange juice you know two three times a day versus not um, my mood is better so there's definitely something at play here and it, it comes down to right the whole low carb if you're if you're inducing a low carb state because your activity level is going up then you have to sort of match your intake now otherwise you're going to start seeing your health decline yeah that is something that I learned firsthand and it's been difficult to find the best way to communicate. I think because so many people started following me when I was strictly ketogenic and carnivore. And, and now when I talk about carbohydrates, I get a lot of pushback, especially on YouTube. There's just this strongly dogmatic and I appreciate, I appreciate passion, but there's a strongly dogmatic community on YouTube that just can't seem to wrap their heads around the notion that carbohydrates could be beneficial for humans. So I don't know if you know this or not, but on some of the carnivore or keto forums, people thought that your account was hacked when you said that you were drinking orange juice. <laughs> I did some comments like that. Is this like April Fool's joke or something people were saying? Yeah. Why do you think, so how do we help educate people here? Like, why do you think people have their have so much trouble wrapping their heads around the benefits of something like orange juice? Yeah, um, I think because how do we? Yeah, how do we enlighten them? There's two camps I feel like. So yeah, when you you have a you have sort of like a more sedentary, low carb fasting camp, right? That works better. And then when you become more athletic, when you start running more, when you start working out more, you start getting that six pack you start appreciating the benefits of carbs. So there's two camps and I've sort of switched more to an active, much more active person. And now I'm definitely more pro carb because carbs are 
going to benefit me versus they probably weren't as beneficial when I was not as active. I was doing more of, of you know, more longer intermittent fasts, things like that. So it's almost like be sedentary and eat less carbs or be active and eat more carbs. And I prefer the latter. I prefer being more active and integrating more carbohydrates. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I, I like that. And I am someone that also prefers to be active. There's just too many cool things to do in the world. I want to go exploring. I want to go hike and jump off a waterfall and go swim in a river and I want to go surfing. And so it benefited me. And for anyone that doesn't know my story, I was strictly carnivore with meat and fruit, excuse me, with meat and organs and fat, no fruit, no carbohydrates from the foods I was eating other than the stored glycogen in the muscle meat, which was negligible for um, for a year and a half. And then I ended up having, you know, my thyroid labs were declining. My subjective body temperature was lower. My pulse became lower, which isn't always a good thing. I had sleep disturbances, electrolyte issues, hormones declining, and all, all kinds of problems that, that really improved rapidly when I added carbohydrates back. Now I've always been an active person. So perhaps there was a mismatch there. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is, if someone is more sedentary, um, and, and they want to do more fasting and we can talk about fasting too in a moment. Do you think there's a minimum amount of carbohydrates they should eat? Or do you think that a zero carb fully ketogenic diet can work for some people? Yeah. So I think you see more benefits from fasting from people that are sedentary and overweight. Whereas if we're talking about fasting 24 hours or longer, there's very few benefits for someone who is lean and active. That's actually very counterproductive when you start fasting longer than 24 hours in an active lean individual. Yeah. And then, so what about somebody who is sedentary and wants to lose weight? Does that person need carbohydrates at all? Do you think? That's a good question. Um, so I think you don't want to just completely shut off the carbohydrate intake because you ideally because you want the body to sort of start to become more accustomed right to, to burning fat for fuel right and we know that can take anywhere from like one to two months to really optimize that type of metabolism so slowly decreasing the carbohydrate intake will not only help you know through the whole metabolic system and, and burning the fuel that the body is not accustomed to burning but also the fact that you're going to have significantly less losses of electrolytes, particularly salt, if you if you slowly taper the carbs down versus just stopping carb intake and dropping insulin. And now you're just flushing out salt like crazy. Yeah, that was something that I definitely had when I was zero carb carnivore. And I was eating organs and I was doing a lot of electrolyte supplements, but I ran into electrolyte issues that were intractable. Um, no matter how much salt, how much magnesium, how much potassium I took in, I would have muscle cramps and palpitations and wake up in the middle of the night with arrhythmias. So right. I think this is an under, an underappreciated, under discussed thing in ketogenic communities, how, how severe these electrolyte uh, derangements can be without some sort of insulin signaling connected with carbohydrates. Now, I know that protein is going to give us some insulin signaling, but there's just at the level of the kidneys, I think that insulin has value in a postprandial state, not all the time. We don't want to be insulin resistant and have chronically elevated insulin, but I don't really understand why insulin has gotten such a bad rap when it literally keeps us alive. And the postprandial after eating insulin spike is valuable for us at the level of uh, maintenance of electrolytes in the kidney, something that I did not learn about in medical school, but is clearly documented at the level of 
um, glutathione, at the level of hormones, at the level of so many pieces in the human body. Have, have you run into this in your sort of educational efforts that people don't really, people kind of demonize insulin and they just want to keep it as low as possible all the time? Yeah, 100% because um, I think really starting from good calories, bad calories, it was almost <laughs> like, right, just keep insulin as low as possible and the carb insulin hypothesis. And there is some truth to that. But again, it's always so nuanced um, in the fact that, yeah, like, you know, insulin is a signaling molecule and it's required for, you know, the utilization of, you know, glucose and fats and, you know, et cetera. So it is, it is something that we need. We just don't want to be resistant to it and we just don't want it to be chronically elevated. Right. So um, I want to circle back to that point, but while we're here, I'll ask you, so how do you think humans become resistant to insulin? This is a really important question um, that, yeah. that I wish Western medicine addressed more directly. Yeah. So just like with anything in life, there's many ways to skin a cat when it comes to what can cause insulin resistance. Um, I think the two most evidence-based substances that we know for sure causes insulin resistance from human clinical trials would be refined carbohydrates and refined sugars, 100%. Now, above and beyond that, I think that over-consuming um, uh, omega-6 seed oils, um, particularly if they are not like cold-pressed, uh, particularly if they are high heat and particularly at a high dose, which most people are consuming. The average American gets about 20% of their calories from soybean oil alone, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, but any nutrient deficiency, particularly a deficiency in magnesium, a deficiency in thiamine, this has been proven in clinical studies in humans, like deficiency studies run in like the 1940s and 50s, that you can induce diabetes and prediabetes simply by cutting out magnesium or cutting out thiamine, um, vitamin C also that uh, if, you, if you're too low on vitamin C, that can induce insulin resistance. Um, so that's part of the equation. Um, but there's cortisol too that can induce insulin resistance. In fact, John Yudkin showed in rats that cortisone, uh, because um, rats don't produce cortisol, that's the human equivalent, um, is cortisone, actually increases before insulin. So actually, Yudkin hypothesized that it's actually cortisol that's elevating first intracellular cortisol, as well as um, just, you know, in the serum before insulin, which is kind of crazy. So there's hormone, there's a lot of hormone things too, that can induce insulin resistance, even being um, deficient in inositol, um, which basically when insulin hits its receptor, um, molecules of inositol get released, which is actually what causes GLUT4 to come up to the cell's membrane and allows glucose to be utilized and burned is actually inositol compounds. So being deficient in that. Um, which we form from glucose inositol, but it requires magnesium and it requires good levels of NAD, which can be depleted by inflammation. So inflammation can cause insulin resistance, which we know too, we know that. Um, so, so sorry, it's a long, it's a lo long laundry list of things that can induce insulin resistance. No, it's great. It's all connected. So on the previous couple of podcasts that I did with Georgie Dinkov, we talked a lot about cortisol and its connection with diabetes and how cortisol blockers are very effective for diabetics, which is not something that's ever talked about. There's a, a pharmaceutical mifepristone, which is also known as RU486, which has cortisol blocking properties. It's used as an abortion pill in the States, but it also has 
cortisol blocking properties. And it seems to have some efficacy, significant efficacy in treating diabetes, if I'm not mistaken. So the cortisol piece, I think from Georgie's perspective is connected with things like stress or poor sleep, but also from gut inflammation. So it's not as complex as, as it needs to be for people. And one hypothesis that I can at least draw out uh, in my mind is, you know, if you inflame your gut from a variety of things, we can talk about what things might inflame the gut, then you know, that could cause systemic inflammation and that could lead to cortisol increasing. Uh, we definitely know that lipopolysaccharide, also known as endotoxin from gram negative cell walls, moving across the GI uh, epithelium causes cortisol to rise. So, you know, things in the gut can trigger cortisol increase and that can lead to uh, hormonal derangements, which can lead to insulin resistance. I totally agree with you about high linoleic acid seed oils being problematic for a variety of reasons. I think they directly have a, a number of toxic effects that I've spoken about on numerous other podcasts. We don't have to go too far down the seed oil rabbit hole. But um, what's been interesting for me recently is looking at differences between high fructose corn syrup and, and sucrose. Have you seen some of this research? It's quite compelling. So from a, like a, a biochemical perspective, sucrose is 50% glucose, 50% fructose. High fructose corn syrup can be as high as 58%, but typically is 55% in the US. Um, and some people will say that 5% extra fructose doesn't seem to be that much big of a difference. Um, it's also, you know, if you're talking about like naturally occurring sucrose, which is another name for sugar versus high fructose corn syrup is synthetically made. There may be some differences too, in regards to the effects of high fructose corn syrup versus let's say just natural sugar coming from sugar cane. Yeah, I mean, so sucrose is a disaccharide of sucrose and glu of uh, glucose and fructose. And uh, my understanding is that high fructose corn syrup is a lot of free glucose and free sucrose, a uh, free glucose and free fructose because of the way it's made. It starts with corn syrup, so it starts with a, a glucose polymer, whether amylose or amylopectin, and then they have to isomerize some of the glucose to make it into fructose. The way they used to make high fructose corn syrup, and I haven't seen evidence to fully prove this isn't still a problem. There were a lot of chloralkali um, reagents used, which can have mercury contamination to the sure. effect of, I think, I'm just pulling these numbers and I don't remember the exact study. It was like 0.5 micrograms per gram of mercury. It was a significant amount of mercury that used to contaminate high fructose corn syrup up until 2009. And the corn manufacturers <laughs> claim that that doesn't happen anymore. But I mean, high fructose corn syrup could be contaminated with mercury. And then I came across... Um, uh, a GC mass spec study looking at high fructose corn syrup in sugar sweetened beverages, things like Gatorade has it in the States, um, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, most sodas have high fructose corn syrup in the US. In Latin America, a lot of times they use sucrose or claim they use sucrose as opposed to high fructose corn syrup. But when they did the gas chromatography mass spec, they had four to five times more calories than were listed on the label. And I thought that is, how come these people haven't talked about, I'll have to send you the study, yeah. Wow, it was like, crazy. what is going on here? And whether it's undigested starches or some, it's like, wow, okay, hmm. that's a real problem. If you're suddenly, a can of Coke has 500 calories, like, hmm. wow. And it says, you know, 140 on the label or something. That's crazy. Hmm. And I, I, we need more research there, but it was, you know, they're just putting this, these multiple beverages into a, you know, like a um, lab analytic machine and seeing like, hmm. there's more calories in there than are listed on the label. So it's, hidden calories. And it makes sense. You have this, I mean, high fructose corn syrup is a quote, synthetic sugar. Again, we're mixing, we're, we're splitting hairs here and getting a little bit, uh, 
specific in our in our verbiage, but but sucrose comes from a sugar cane. I mean, I have sugar cane on my counter, um, and they made this high fructose corn syrup out of corn, which didn't have any fructose to begin with. Right. Yeah, I think um, too the piece that a lot of people um, forget is you know Kimber Stanhope her group has done a really good job at actually showing that even matched for calories. Um, that fructose is more harmful than glucose. So even having more fructose in high fructose corn syrup versus sucrose can actually potentially play an additional harmful role of high fructose corn syrup too. Do you fear fructose in your diet? I know you're, you're drinking orange juice. Yeah, not from, not from natural sources, not if it's timed correctly and not if someone's metabolically healthy, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the key I like, I'm not telling people to consume 10 ounces of orange juice two to three times a day. It's two ounces of orange juice two to three times a day, right? And that's a big difference. And also, I'm an active individual. So, um, yeah, it's it's context and nuance when it comes to all this stuff. I'll go out on a limb and tell people to consume 10 ounces of orange juice twice a day. I think that's great. I freaking love orange <laughs> juice. And orange juice is high in thymine. So, you know, one of the things that I've done on the podcast, people can go back and look at this, is put my diet through chronometer um, online uh, from a couple different permutations. And it was interesting to see like, where am I getting magnesium? Because when people think about any diet, whether it's animal-based or paleo or keto, they always say, where are you getting your magnesium? And I mean, I was getting 450 milligrams of magnesium per day from the foods. I want to talk about magnesium specifically with you. And people can find that. I did a reel on Instagram where I talk about where I'm getting magnesium from, but I was also getting 140% of the RDA and thymine every single day, um, a lot of that coming from orange juice. So you mentioned thymine deficiency leading to insulin resistance. Yeah. Well, I mean, fruit, multiple types of fruit, which contain fructose, which I think personally has been villainized. And there's a lot of nuance there that hasn't been appreciated. Refined fructose and high fructose corn syrup versus naturally occurring fructose, like you're saying, probably timed well and titrated based on activity levels. Yeah. Um, there's there's interesting things there. So a lot of these fruits that have these things can come with some beneficial nutrients. I mean, even maple syrup has Mangan. a pretty good amount of manganese. People often ask like, where do you get your manganese? Well, I mean, maple syrup has manganese, guys. I don't know. If they, I don't know how much manganese deficiency there actually is, but um, there's a lot of nutrients that can come in fruit or fruit juices. But I did a I did a reel on Instagram, what I eat in a day. And I like to mix them up a little bit so it's not exactly the same diet. Um, and, and people were like, you're just drinking sugar with that orange juice. And I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> I don't know how to help people understand. This is pretty beneficial for humans. It's, I mean, I, I'm fresh squeezing it. I'm like juicing the thing with a freaking handle myself. Um, I want to come to this point in a moment, but I'll ask you first, have you, do you get blood work regularly? Cause that's been a fun thing for me to kind of share with my followers. I get blood work once a year. Typically I use inside tracker to get my blood work. What was your, are you willing to share your recent like hemoglobin A1C and like fasting insulin? Yeah. So, okay. So, um, to be clear, my A1C was before I started supplementing with thiamine was about like 5.2. And then uh -huh. once I started supplementing with thiamine, it went to 4.8. So, okay. you know, just being deficient in some nutrients can help you even optimize like five, most people would say, oh, 5.2, that's great. Cause 6.5 is diabetes. So 5.2, that's, that's pretty good. But you can, you know, that that's what I'm trying to sh show is that real time, you can improve an A1C from 5.2 to 4.8 in my case, just by supplementing with thiamine. 
Yeah, my A1C is pretty consistently on this diet 5.4, so it's a little higher than yours. Yeah. I do eat a lot of carbohydrates because I'm pretty active. But what's interesting, and um, I got permission from my friend's dad to share this. We won't share his actual blood work, but we can put his blood work on the screen. So my friend's dad is zero carb or probably 20 grams of carbs a day from blueberries, if that. He eats butter and he eats steak. And his A1C is 5.5. Right. So, I mean, I, I, this is a challenge that I will issue on this podcast to any of the, um, and I respect all of these people on YouTube, any of the low carb advocates on YouTube, any of the strict carnivores, like show me your labs. Um, you know, I, I texted one of my friends who's a doctor on YouTube and I said, Hey, let's do another podcast. Um, and, and let's go over both of our labs because my suspicion, I could be wrong about this is that my A1C will be lower or equivalent to theirs. And I'm eating 250 grams of carbohydrates a day right. and my fasting insulin will be equivalent to theirs. So my fasting insulin is three, no matter whether, I mean, it was, it was probably 3.5 or three when I was zero carb carnivore and it's still three and people can look back to my podcast and see this, but I'm eating 250 plus grams of carbohydrates a day. And my fasting insulin is three. My fasting blood glucose is 84 and my A1C is 5.4 and your A1C is 5.2 and now 4.8. What's your fasting insulin? I bet it's like three. I've uh, never actually had a fasting insulin though. James, <laughs> the most important blood work. I'm sure it's five. I'm sure it's three, but you can get, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really interesting. But I do think that there's been, there's been a lot of loss of nuance around this carbohydrate conversation. And the, generally the message that I see mostly on YouTube, um, and I love all you YouTubers, I'm just saying you guys are sometimes kind of dogmatic. Um, is that carbs are bad. You're carb addicted, James, because you're drinking three ounces of orange juice a day. And I'm definitely carb addicted because I had 12 ounces of orange juice at breakfast. <laughs> and, and, you know, okay, so here's another thing I'll bring up. I saw this and I'll get your perspective on this. I saw this on Instagram yesterday and it kind of, kind of bummed me out a little bit. Um, one of my friends, a health influencer tweeted something saying uh, a well-known, I think he said a famous Ray Pete influencer just found out that he's pre-diabetic eating orange juice, maple syrup, honey, et cetera. And now he's going zero carb. People in the comments were saying like at carnivore MD, is this you? It's not me guys. I'm, I'm not pre-diabetic. You can look at the blood work that we just shared, but you do research. And this is a guy named Matt Blackburn, who's been an advocate for a repeat perspective. Right. And what Matt Blackburn did is he wore a continuous glucose monitor. He didn't have an A1C. He doesn't have a fasting insulin. He wore a continuous glucose monitor. And the people at that continuous glucose monitor told him that he was pre-diabetic. And so first of all, I'm like, that's complete bullshit. You cannot make a diagnosis of diabetes based on a continuous glucose monitor. I think they're great. I'm a huge fan of NutriSense. And I think people wearing continuous glucose monitors really helps them understand. And you can see patterns on continuous glucose monitors that suggest insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance or metabolic dysregulation. But for this guy, for this influencer, um, to say I'm pre-diabetic based on a CGM is basically the company that did it, which was not NutriSense, it was another company, is way out of their league telling him it's pre-diabetic. Get an A1C, get a fasting insulin. And I don't understand why this guy would go then zero carb because your CGM might look better, but I'm pretty sure your A1C is going to go up. I mean, have you encountered this like miss, let me just, how do I phrase this? I feel like there is, and you can agree or disagree with me. I feel like there is a, there's an overly rigid detrimental focus on absolute blood glucose numbers that is hurting people. People freak out if their blood glucose goes over 110 milligrams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. 
And, and in his post, this guy said, I was having postprandial increases in my blood glucose of 30 milligrams per deciliter. And I'm thinking, that sounds pretty healthy to me. There's nothing right. wrong with a 30 milligram per deciliter increase in your blood glucose. So that's my perspective. But uh, I would love for your perspective on this idea of like how strictly we really follow our blood glucose. Yeah, because it totally depends on how long that elevation is, is staying for. Um, because the earliest and best way to diagnose um, uh, diabetes is actually an insulin assay, a postprandial insulin assay. So, you know, basically it's how long insulin is elevated for. And, and typically that ref may or may not reflect glucose. So um, because you can have really good glucose numbers, but that could be being controlled by a ton of insulin, right? Like your glucose is low, but your insulin's super high. Um, I don't believe though, that if you have small or even fairly decent spikes in blood glucose every now and then, if it comes down quickly and your muscles are soaking it up really quickly and you're not metabolically compromised, that's, that's normal. That's going to happen. And I don't think there's a ton of damage that occurs from that. Um, if it's not staying elevated for a particularly long period of time. And even if it is, it's, it's, it, you know, we don't even know exactly, okay, if you hit 140, it's got to be one hour, you know, for this to be actually harmful or not. We, we still have a ton of work to do on, in regards to how harmful glucose spikes are. Yeah, I think this is widely misunderstood and widely talked about without a solid foundation of research um, to support it. People, people worry in the online community um, and again, I, I love you guys. I just want to offer you a different perspective. If you're listening to this and you're, you fall into this category, people worry in the online community that any spike quote unquote in blood sugar is bad for them. Well, I think that it's more important to consider the total AUC, the area under the curve. And if your A1C is 6.2, like some well-known carnivore influencers or 5.7 or 5.8, and mine is 5.4 or James is 5.2 or 4.8, then you're not getting any insulin spikes, but your total area under the curve, you're not getting any glucose spikes, but your total insulin, you know, and your total glucose area under the curve is potentially greater than someone who is eating carbohydrates. So from that respect, I mean, all it's, it's at least equivalent, but it's never discussed in that manner. There's just this fear that, Glucose in the blood equals bad, and that's going to glycate your tissues or affect the glycocalyx or cause this or that to misfunction. And yet, if you don't eat glucose, your liver makes it. Right. And yet it's toxic for us, and it's glycating all of our tissues, and any spike in it is bad. And I think, mm -hmm. wait, we've, people have gotten so confused about this. I think that my suspicion is that the real pathology lies in, in hyperinsulinemia rather than in hyperglycemia. Yeah, because, I, I, agree. I agree. Yeah, would you agree with that? Well, the, the thing too that people are, are forgetting is an animal, a freshly killed animal is a tremendous source of glycogen. So a liver, a fresh liver is going to have 400 grams of glycogen. That'd be a fairly small animal about our size, not a gigantic mammoth, right? And then the skeletal muscle glycogen is going to be over twice that when you're consuming fresh meat. You know, we don't consume fresh meat and fresh liver anymore, most of us. There's a huge different difference in the amount of glycogen you get from the two. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. It takes a while post-mortem right. for the glycogen to be depleted. So we, 
if people can't wrap their heads around consuming glucose, well, think about consuming how much glycogen you would get when you would consume a freshly killed animal. I, I love this point. And it, it kind of harkens back to the conversation with Mickey Bendor. Yes, our ancestors appeared to have a lot of their protein from animal sources based on carbon, nitrogen, and, and sulfur dating of the, uh, of, the, of the remains of the bones of them, um, the stable isotope studies. But there's no refrigeration 50, 100,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. They were probably not low carb. Uh, right. And so this was something that I overlooked um, in my research on carnivore diets and, and research on meat-only diets without carbohydrates is that you can find, or I could find anthropology to suggest this, and you can find hunter-gatherer tribes that eat a lot of meat. Um, but even when I was with the Hadza, they loved honey and berries. But eating freshly killed animals is not low-carb. Right. And so we have, the animal meat wouldn't have stayed long enough to become very low carb. Perhaps some of it would have if you're drying it as jerky, right. but I mean, at, at least a good portion of the animal meat and the livers was eaten fresh by all the people in the tribe. And even if you're just eating an animal kill, there's glycogen in there. I mean, when I was with the Hadza in Tanzania, we hunted a baboon and believe me, that baboon was eaten within hours. The whole thing was gone. Mm -hmm. Like the whole thing is gone. The liver was gone among everyone in the tribe within less than an hour. And then all the other organs are gone before we even get back to camp. And then the muscle meat is shared along the tribe and we ate the brains the next day. <laughs> That's a different story. I don't think I got prion disease. Um, but yeah, I, I love this point that, that historically, even if you were just eating meat and organs, that would have had significant amounts of carbohydrates that break down within, I don't know, we, we could do the studies. Do you, do you have any data on that? I don't know exactly how fast it breaks down. I think it takes a full 24 hours to break down all of the glycogen. Um, and the other thing to think about too, is the more predominant animal consuming cultures, uh, lived in colder climates and the freezing climates, let's say of the Inuit would probably prevent, uh, that from occurring. So they could basically have meat. Um, it wouldn't even have to be quote unquote, after a fresh kill, um, it would just be frozen. Um, and, and that process wouldn't happen. Um, until it would completely thaw out. But I think it does take, um, it takes hours. It's not going to happen within one hour. I'm pretty sure there's some that starts to occur within four, but you're going to still have some until about, I think it takes a full 24 hours for most of it to um, basically be depleted. Super interesting. And you can imagine that I'd have to talk to my friend, Will Harris at White Oak Pastures, um, who make in my opinion, some of the best meat, well-raised and, and well-tended and, and uh, you know, um, humanely slaughtered meat out there. But once they kill a cow, I wonder how quickly it goes into a freezer and then it's packaged and you could think about like how, but I mean, it would just be pretty interesting and pretty easy to think, all right, if you, if you're getting meat on the shelf in your butcher at any store, you're going to like how much glycogen is actually left in that meat. That meat's been going through the supply chain for weeks. Well, I don't know, at least a week, I would say a few days well, for sure. Typically they hang a steak for like, gosh, like two, three weeks to tenderize it. You know what I mean? Like it's so that yeah. glycogen is gone. Yeah. Even at, even at lower temperatures, perhaps. I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot to be said there. We, we talked a lot about magnesium and I think when I think magnesium, your name is probably the top of the list. So let's just, let's wrap on magnesium a little bit. Um, you mentioned magnesium deficiency can, can lead to insulin resistance. Um, and I've seen you post things about 
what staggeringly large percentage of the population based on age ranges are deficient in magnesium. But why don't you walk me through some of that stuff and then we can talk about why you think so many people are deficient in this mineral. Yeah, so the range um, based on our review paper is really anywhere from about 20 to really upwards of 80% of the population could be deficient in magnesium. Um, and that's usually not even looking at the gold standard ways to measure. That's just looking at like basically low blood levels. Um, but sometimes they'll, they'll use like um, IV magnesium low tests where they essentially give about 400 milligrams of magnesium over four hours IV. And you see how much comes out in the urine over 24 hours. And if, you, if the body's holding on to a certain percentage, then you're considered deficient. Um, and as you have more disease states, the increase in the prevalence of magnesium deficiency goes up. So osteoporosis is about the highest, been documented about 80% of people with osteoporosis has have magnesium deficiency. And then when you look at the quote unquote healthiest population that's been studied like college students, you, you're looking at about 20% of those, but you're really not looking at gold standard tests like mononuclear blood cell, which is the only blood magnesium test that's actually been standardized to match IV magnesium load test. Um, it's probably even higher. So if I had to estimate on average, probably 50% of the U.S. population is magnesium deficient to some degree. And even marginal deficiency increases the risk of arrhythmias. Um, like there's been good studies showing that if you bring the magnesium intake down to 100, 110 milligrams, one out of three people develop atrial fibrillation. Um, so we know that you want to be consuming, obviously, more than 100 milligrams of magnesium. The studies that I've looked at um, on a typical standard American diet um, have shown that you have to get at least at the bare minimum 150 to 180 on a standard American diet. Otherwise, you will uh, slowly deplete the body of magnesium. So if you're on a whole nutritious diet, you might be able to get away with maybe 125 milligrams of magnesium and still remain in balance. Of course, that doesn't mean optimal intake. And one of the things we talked about in our last podcast, which seems like a lifetime ago, was the fact that I think we agreed on this then that, that a lot of magnesium deficiency probably happens because so much of the population is obese and insulin resistant, and that causes wasting of magnesium. Right. Yes. Yeah. Hyper, hyperinsulinemia will increase the loss of magnesium in the urine, and it will also decrease the ability of magnesium to get into the cell. And so you basically, your body is in, unable to utilize magnesium because there is a significant insulin component to driving both magnesium and potassium into the cell. So if the cell becomes insulin resistant, you're almost automatically deficient in magnesium now because you can't really get it into the cell very well. So that's a kind of an overlooked reason or cause for magnesium deficiency is literally the cell becoming insulin resistant. Is the um, mononuclear cell magnesium blood test available widely. I'm going to, no, no you can't get it like LabCorp. It's more of a research tool. You can see uh -huh. if you can get it. Um, but yeah, that's more of a research tool. But you know what, here's, here's what's interesting is um, if you raise the cutoff on blood magnesium to a more optimal cutoff, blood can actually be a fairly good indicator. So the typical cutoff for magnesium deficiency is less than 1.7 milligrams per deciliter. But our review paper showed that if you're less than two milligrams per deciliter and you have a low urinary magnesium, that is very highly indicative of magnesium deficiency. So with any nutrient, you always want to have two measurements, whether it be blood plus urine or mononuclear cell plus blood, you always want to have at least two measurements to sort of 
try to indicate if you are deficient or not. Have you ever done any of those blood tests on yourself? That'd be so interesting. I haven't, um, but I, I do the inside tracker blood test and my, my magnesium is always around two, 2.1. Uh -huh. It's never less than two, which is really, you don't want to be less than two ideally. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I can go back and look at my blood work real quick um, in this podcast and, and let everybody know what my magnesium was. But, uh, um, I'm going back to, I'm going to Los Angeles in the next couple of weeks. I'm going to get some more blood work. And I wonder, I bet urinary magnesium is something people could get very easily. And yep. so if people are curious about magnesium status, you could just do a blood level of magnesium and a urinary magnesium then. Yes, because um, there's urine test strips. Vivu is one company that will measure magnesium in the urine. Essentially, a third of your dietary magnesium comes out in the urine. So if you're consuming 300 milligrams in the diet, 100 will come out in the urine. So typically, when you're below 100, you're probably you're not you're not probably getting a good amount of magnesium. Yeah. But That's that would. You'd have to do like a 24 hour urine for that. That, right? would, be a, that would be a 24. But um, there are there are urine test strips. Uh, basically that will just kind of calculate that out for you in a spot test. Um, again, nothing's perfect, which is why you always want to have two tests. Yeah. That's interesting. A, um, a, a urinary spot. That's cool. Now blood isn't perfect, right? Because you know, you can have a normal blood, but your ionized magnesium is low. Okay. So there's a magnesium is super complex. You know what I mean? Um, actually ionized magnesium is better, but in certain yeah, things, but actually raise serum magnesium, but cause serum or cause magnesium deficiency. Like if you're on a thiazide diuretic, it's been right. shown to actually raise serum levels of magnesium, but to cause magnesium deficiency. So there's a lot of, you know, intricacies on this. Interesting. So would you, is it worth somebody checking a, an ionized magnesium? Yeah, I think so. I think there's some worth and some value there. Um, and there's been studies actually that have shown that serum ionized magnesium actually matches intracellular um, ionized magnesium very well, which is really what you're looking for, right? Because most magnesium is in the cell and the active form is the ionized. You mm -hmm. can't get an ionized magnesium in the cell test very easily. So to know that there's studies showing that the serum ionized matches very well with what's going on in the cell, that... That, that's a good test to get. Oh, cool. Interesting. So I'll probably, I'm going to probably get a serum mag and ionized mag. And maybe, maybe if I can, maybe if I can find some spot urinary magnesium strips in the States, I'll post about it. But my magnesium, the last time I had it checked was um, two. So that's perfect too. So like maybe a little better. So just for the sources of magnesium, we can run through these for people in your daily diet. Where do you get magnesium? I know you supplement as well, probably, but yeah. in your diet, maybe you don't even need to supplement. Uh, so it's hard to say because I used to eat more fish, which is higher typically in magnesium and shellfish um, versus like, let's say land animal meat. Um, although you can get a D you can get a decent amount. If you're consuming like, you know, typically I think a pound of meat is around 50 to 75 milligrams of magnesium around thereabouts, maybe up to a hundred, depending on yeah, the some estimates I've seen are over a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. The ranges are completely different. Of course, it's always going to happen, right. Depending on the feed and, and what animal you're looking at, but a good range would be 50 to hundred milligrams of magnesium per pound of meat. Um, so you're, you're ideally hoping to get about 150 milligrams of magnesium as a bare minimum, which is why I typically always get at least hundred milligrams as a supplement because I know my diet isn't super, super high in magnesium because all the things that I used to eat that are high in magnesium, I don't really eat anymore, like nuts and spinach and all these other quote unquote high magnesium things. They have other 
you know, harms at high doses. So it's like, Oh, I'm interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you eat those foods anymore? Uh, well, number one, they don't really taste very good <laughs> to be fair. Like, you know, I, I was sick of just like, you know, trying to force spinach down my throat. Yeah. Um, mainly why I think there's a little more joint issues I was having too when I was eating more of those foods. Oxalates? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having Sally Norton on the podcast next week and she just wrote a book, Toxic Superfoods. So that's kind of cool. I've been kind of geeking out on oxalates again, but I've always thought about that. My magnesium was lowest based on my subjective experience and my blood work, which was a different type of blood work. It was like a spectrocell you know, some of these functional medicine labs, but my magnesium was in the toilet when I was a raw vegan eating tons of leafy greens and tons of almonds. I've always wondered, at least in things like almonds, how bioavailable the magnesium is because there's phytic acid and there's oxalates, which we know are going to prevent the absorption of the magnesium. I mean, there's been parallel studies with other divalent cations like zinc with oysters and beans and wheat and tortillas. And, right. and the spinach thing is a real problem because you're just going to get a I mean, spinach is just an oxalate bomb. It's, there's so much. We just, I think today we just did a reel on oxalates in a smoothie and two cups of spinach is like 450 milligrams of oxalates. And mm -hmm. people can listen to the podcast with Sally for the full oxalate download, but probably we want to have 50 to 100 milligrams of oxalates per day in our diet. And so a lot of these foods that are supposedly really great high in magnesium are oxalate bombs. Right. Um, I, was, I was encouraged to learn that with my diet, um, coconut water has a good amount of magnesium. And so I'm lucky to be in Costa Rica. I can just get coconuts like all the time. Um, so most of what I drink is coconut water these days. I don't actually drink, um, water. Um, all of the low carbers, I love you. will will get, get triggered at that, but so be it. Um, but it's really high in magnesium and milk is actually pretty good for magnesium. A couple cups of milk has a good amount of magnesium. Orange juice has a good amount of magnesium. And there was at least one more thing that I was eating every day that had a good amount of magnesium. But between, between the milk, the orange juice and the, um, meat, you're getting that for meat too. The meat. Yep. The meat and the coconuts, I was getting over 400 milligrams of magnesium per day in my diet. So that's really interesting. Yeah. But I think that a lot of people are deficient. They're not getting enough and you guys can use chronometer or whatever you want to like look based on the USDA database, but getting enough magnesium is, is pretty critical. Um, do you want to, do you want to talk a little bit about hydration before the podcast? You were saying this is like a huge research project that you're interested in. Like yeah. how do people optimize hydration status? Yeah. So it's like, it's the most, um, the largest nutrient in our body, right? It's like 60% of our body is water. And yet like there is no real good guidelines on fluid intake. It's kind of crazy when you really think about it. Right. Um, so I really wanted to understand like what is optimal hydration uh, and what was, I'll just kind of go over some high level things and you can sort of kind of ask me questions on that. But basically what I learned is that thirst is a survival mechanism and it doesn't get activated unless you consume like salt or something like that, unless you are anywhere from 0.8 to 2% dehydrated. In other words, mm -hmm. if you are only drinking when you are thirsty, then you are constantly dehydrated and you're playing catch up. Now I've never been a fan of just drink water, drink water, drink water. But when I learned that, and I learned that if, if thirst was a mechanism that kept you optimally hydrated, it would be telling you to drink more often than you 
than was like really physiologically you would want evolutionarily. It'd be this signal that was just constantly super annoying. So it only gets activated when you're already dehydrated. So that's number one. Number two, we lose about 4% of our total body weight per day in water. That's when you don't actually have any perceivable sweat. So if you want to figure out, like if you're not widely overweight because fat only contains 10% water and muscle contains 75% water. So if you're highly overweight, you don't want to do the 4% right, calculation because you're going to be drinking way more water than you actually need because you're mostly fat and fat's only 10% water. But, um, 4% of your total body weight is a good estimate of how much water you need per day. And then typically two thirds of that would come from fluid. And then a third of that would come from like whole foods. But essentially, like for me, I think I need around three liters of water per day. So I typically get about like two liters of water from beverages. And then I get about one liter from my diet because most of my diet is, is water. So most people, a good estimate is take your body weight in pounds divide it in half if you're not super overweight. And that's how many ounces of water you should consume total. And then really consuming small amounts more frequently is up to 40% more hydrating. And it's going to cause you to go to the bathroom much less than just drinking like three large amounts of water throughout the day. So like, really, I've tried to always have a bottle of water around me and not like slam a ton of it, just slowly sip it like throughout the day. And I've noticed that my hydration is much better. And as you're doing this with this much liquid, you need to probably take in more electrolytes, either through salt with your food, yep. basically whole foods that have these electrolytes, potassium and fruit, or these, these kind of things, right? Because the, the flip side is if you're just drinking water, you can become hyponatremic, probably not with three liters a day, but you could lower your serum sodium a little bit, I think, with that. Yeah, so essentially, like, the, the key is, again, the nuance, right? It's like you can consume a decent amount of water and it's not going to lead to really much of a flushing out effect if it's spaced over a long window. The problem where people get into trouble with hyponatremia is, well, when arginine vasopressin is activated, like when you're exercising to conserve fluid, and then you start slamming large amounts of free water, now you're getting yourself into trouble because the body is, is in a water-logged, water-conserving state from a hormonal perspective. But um, no, 100%, I'm not saying like, I mean, I'm the salt guy. So of course, salt is super important for hydration, but I hadn't really researched the water part of this, right? I've always been like really into the salt part, but I've never really fully understood well, what's an optimal fluid intake and what's the best way to measure like hydration status. And really you don't want to measure dehydration because that's something that you don't want to happen. So what can you measure before you get dehydrated? And it's actually under hydration or low water intake. And the best way to measure that is a urine morning specific gravity um, is one of the best ways to actually know if you've been consuming a good amount of water or not, or an mm -hmm. evening urine specific gravity. And as long as you haven't had a lot of fluid within two hours of that test, then it's going to be a good indication if you are consuming a good amount of water or a low amount of water. And the, the reason why everyone is so focused on dehydration and I'm focused on underhydration, like, like, is because you can go a full day without drinking any water and your osmolality might not change a lot, which is the gold standard for testing for dehydration. So you want to test under hydration 
which is only shown through the urine and that occurs much quicker. So um, really just urine is a really great way to understand if the pot, if you're consuming a good amount of water or not. So this would be like first morning urine specific yeah. gravity. Yes. Yeah. What would you want to see it at? Ideally 1.005 to 1.015. Um, okay. Yeah. Because 1.005 is like maximally dilute, right? Like that's pretty much as low as it goes. Well, one is essentially is, is uh -huh. basically the exact, well, that's free water. You don't want yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but 1.015 would be, you wouldn't want it any more concentrated than that. You wouldn't want it more, right. Because then that's suboptimal hydration status and technically yeah. dehydration is 1.020. Okay. Interesting. 1.020. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that's easy. I mean, you guys can get that with like a first morning urinalysis. If you go to get blood work, yeah. just get a urinalysis and every urinalysis is going to have a specific gravity and you'll get a sense of how hydrated you are at the time. Now, as the morning goes on, you know, you're going to become a little more, it's tricky. I mean, it, is this somebody that's like, hasn't had anything to drink? That's the first thing when you wake up in the morning. Yeah. Like the first, yes. The first thing um, you want to do when you wake up, if you want to test your hydration status or in regards to have you been consuming a good amount of water would be your urine specific gravity. Do they sell, do they sell strips for that, that people could use in their homes? Yeah. Vivu. Vivu does that. And they also test for magnesium too. Oh, interesting. How do you spell that? Uh, v I V O O. Okay. Interesting. Cool. I'll have to check them out. Yep. Now, do you pee in the middle of the night? Yes, I do. <laughs> How many times? Anywhere from like two to three typically. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I hate that. I pee like once in the middle of the night, but sometimes I'll go the whole night without peeing. And I don't know if that's good or bad. You know, like it's like, yeah, it, it's like, Am I overhydrated if I have to get up in the middle of the night to pee? Um, I've always right. wondered about that. I mean, presuming that both of us are uh, adult men and both of us have low PSAs. Neither of us has prostatic hypertrophy, which I know, and I'm sure you, from my labs. So this isn't right. a urinary retention issue. It's just, I'm just curious for your uh, subjective experience. Yeah, I know. And, and it's, you know, increased urinary like frequency of urination it kind of runs in my family like that seems to be a problem so and i i've always been someone that's um even before increasing or being more adamant about my fluid intake it's i've always woken up at least once to pee at night i mean i never go through a full night without uh waking up to pee um but there's a huge problem being underhydrated, not just dehydrated, but a low water intake increases the risk of tons of issues, type two diabetes, like uh, cardiovascular disease, all cause mortality. Like you can give animals sugar and there'll be more fat deposits if they're dehydrated versus not. So dehydration, a lack of a low fluid intake um, is not a good thing because think about it. Water is the, the universal solvent where every biochemical reaction occurs. Um, and your fluid status too is also determined by salt. I don't want to just talk about water, a low salt versus a normal salt intake, you will have a two pound difference in fluid. So we know that like low salt diets, barely lower blood pressure, like unless you're hypertensive, but what they do is they completely dehydrate you. Your total body water goes down by about two pounds. Now you might not think that's a lot, but when you're an athlete, you will absolutely know the effect of not having two extra pounds of water in you from a performance perspective, from a cognition perspective. So three to 5,000 milligrams of sodium with two to three liters of water is typically on average what most people want to aim for.
And that three to five milligram, the three to five grams of sodium means six to 10 grams of salt. Yeah, exactly. So the three, so a teaspoon of salt is around anywhere from 2,100 to 2,300 milligrams of sodium, depending on like the other minerals that are in it. Right. So you're talking about one and a half to two teaspoons of salt every day is really your optimal intake, along with around two to three liters of water, um, more around the two liters for a woman, you know, like, and then more around three liters for an average typical sized man. Interesting. So what I would recommend people do is take a, take one of the scales from Amazon. If people have it in their house, a gram scale and weigh out, you know, seven grams of salt to 10 grams of salt. So you see how much that is and then use that throughout the day and see if you're getting seven to 10 grams of salt. But just remember that most salt is sodium chloride plus other minerals. And what James is saying here is just the sodium component of that. So it's not three to five grams of salt, it's three to five grams of right. sodium. And you're gonna to need to weigh that out or like look at that to see how much you're getting. I think if, unless you are physically like restricting salt, most people probably get that because our bodies kind of crave that when we have access to it. I mean, it's just, if you're salting your steak or your eggs to taste, I think most of us probably are getting something reasonable, but if you're not, that would be a really uh, good improvement in your, in your functionality. And certainly, yeah. Well, the key, so if you're eating like a whole food diet, right, you're not getting the salty fluids anymore. And so yeah. your whole food diet is going to be really low in salt. So you ha absolutely have to be throwing in anywhere from two to four grams of sodium. Otherwise you're not, you're going to feel like crap. Exactly. So that's why I weigh it out and like yeah. have the salt. Um, as part of your daily thing, just so you see how much you're using, but don't, don't fear, don't fear salt guys. Yeah. Um, James, thank you so much for this podcast. We covered everything. That was amazing. <laughs> I think people probably learned a ton. Where can people find you? And um, what, what, what's the most recent book you wrote? You write, you, like I've said, you've written so many, it's ridiculous. Uh, the college, the collagen cure uh, was the most, okay. yeah. Um, and where can people find that or follow you for social media stuff? Yeah, those books are on Amazon and my website is drjamesdenick.com and social media is at drjamesdenick. Amazing. And uh, your tweets are popping off on Instagram all the time or Twitter and amazing. So thanks for coming on, brother. And I hope we get to hang out in person soon. Yeah, absolutely. Steak. Let's do it. We, we got to do it. We're long overdue. I know.